Hello and welcome to The Researcher Podcast, your regular look at the research that's making waves in the scientific community and the people behind it. My name is Joe Fenton and I will be your host today. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Melanie Keep from the University of Sydney. Melanie is, alongside Dr. Alison Atchell-Smith, the author of Controlling You Watching Me, Measuring Perception Control on Social Media. Today we'll be finding out a bit more about both the paper and the person behind it. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. So let's get into it. So before we get into your paper, could you tell us a little bit about both yourself and your academic career so far? Sure. Um, I am Mel Keep. I have a fascination with how people communicate and the impacts of the way we communicate and interact with each other on our health and well-being. And I started my PhD in 2007, around about the time when e-health research and online counselling was starting to grow in Australia. And I became really interested in what this all means for us as people. So how does the, the internet and particularly then text-based communication affect the way that we interact with each other um, and the types of relationships we can and do develop? And how does that translate into a health context? So um, how does online self-disclosure change when you move from a social context to a counselling or a coaching psychology context? Uh, and then from there, I sort of got carried away or swept away with the technology and the ways in which it's really changed how we interact with each other. So with the emergence and the growth of social media, now with uh, tools such as apps and patient portals uh, that allow patients access to their own health data in a way that they haven't had before. My research looks at the impact of all being surrounded by all of this technology on our own health and well-being, but also how we can use these tools and leverage them to improve the health care that we receive from um, the existing health services. Okay, so what motivated you to look at e-health and, for this specific paper, e-health and social media together? So right at the very start, I was sitting in a lecture, an ethics lecture for my honours year, and the lecturer was talking about how all these psychologists were going online and delivering online therapy, and there was no research for it, um, and how could they do such an awful thing? And then I thought, actually, if there's no research, maybe somebody should be looking into it. And that's how I started uh, looking into technology and health to begin with. Um, and then... Social media in particular, I think, has always been really interesting because of the way that it permeates our lives. Uh, people often report one of the first things they do when they wake up in the morning is they switch off the alarm, which is on their phone, and then open a social media account and just scroll through. Or that might be the last thing that they do before they go to bed. I'm of an age where many of my friends are having children and parenthood and I think in a way motherhood as well can be particularly challenge, challenging in terms of people's expectations of you and your own expectations of you. Bringing social media into the mix and feeling like you're constantly on show or other people's lives are constantly better than yours I think has a real effect on our own social, psychological and emotional well-being. And I was really interested in what the mechanisms are that are underpinning this. How can we better understand what's actually happening uh, so that we could have sensible conversations about it for people who are using it now, but also for users who are getting increasingly younger 
in terms of their access to social media. So you're also saying that your background is in e-health. And obviously, we understand the term health, understand e. But for those listeners that might not be too familiar with the term e-health, could you give us an overview of what this actually is? So e-health is uh, quite an Australian term we've learnt as we've uh, our research has grown in the area. Around the world, um, terms such as m-health for mobile health, telehealth or telemedicine, or digital health have uh, much more currency, I suppose. Um, the way we've conceived of e-health is about understanding the ways in which technology impacts on our own health and well-being, and the ways in which we can use technology in our health and well-being. Um, and that technology spans tools such as social media, apps, wearable devices. Um, virtual reality, digital games, um, but it also includes the use of data. So if you take, for instance, um, Fitbits and the data that's generated from there, how could that be used to deliver more personalised healthcare? And so we have a model that's been published that tries to conceptualise e-health within three broad domains. So one looks at um, health in the hands of consumers. So these are your apps, your wearables, the things that people have access to that can be used to monitor, manage and improve their own health and well-being. The next domain is around data. And this includes things such as online health records, data sharing between health organisations and the individual and how these can be used to personalise care. And then the third domain is around communication and interactions between health professionals and also between health professionals and everyday people. So tools such as using video conferencing to deliver care to people um, who might not be able to access care due to physical impairments or living in rural, regional or remote areas. And so we believe that these three domains encapsulate the breadth of e-health but also allow researchers and consumers to think about the areas of e-health that are most relevant and interesting to them. So just how long have these three domains been a part of the scholarship and just how much further can we take these domains? Uh, can you clarify the how much larger or how much further can they go? So I guess in terms of uh, leveraging data, as data is a massive part of our daily lives, and we're seeing it used more and more and it becoming more influential. Yes, um, the data question is really interesting. Uh, and I think my response would vary depending on how recently I've watched a Black Mirror episode. Um, I think there's, so I suppose what we see in the near future in terms of the use of individual data um, and the concerns that people are raising in Australia are around the impacts of this data on things such as health insurance premiums. So here we have uh, the public health care system, which is for all intents and purposes, free for Australian citizens. Um, we also have the private healthcare system, which people elect to be part of. So you can choose to pay for private health insurance, which then enables you to access um, a whole host of other services. And mostly it's around choice. So it allows you to choose um, who your doctor is going to be or choose where you get your glasses or what type of glasses you get. 
And so uh, the other debate that's currently happening at the moment is our government has rolled out a national health record and it's an opt-out service rather than an opt-in service. And people now, uh, unless you choose to go through a, a fairly lengthy process, have an electronic medical record uh, that is stored centrally and can be accessed by people who you may or may not know. Um, the intention is very well-meaning. We, in our country, the health services don't always have a mechanism to talk to each other very well. So if I am unwell in Sydney and I need to go to Melbourne for a trip and I go see another health professional in Melbourne, there's no communication about what's happened to me between the two sites. And so the intention be behind this universal health record is that I could take that information with me anywhere. So if I were to travel and get into an accident, for instance, they would know that I am allergic to this, that and the other, um, that I've had a history of this, and it would help uh, streamline my care and speed up some of those um, administrative processes. The concerns that have been raised at the moment have been around the security of that data. So how can we as citizens be assured that that's not going to be able to be hacked and used against us in some way? Other concerns have been around, well, what if, what if an employer asks for access to your health records and makes a decision about a promotion or whether you're going to get the job or not based on the information that's in there? How will these insurance companies have access, be able to use that information to increase or decrease premiums? So there's concerns, a lot of concerns about the integrity of the data and the confidentiality of the data. But I think it also has the potential to do some real good if we sort of put aside or acknowledge our concerns, but also see the potential for us to be able to get care that's personalized for me. So if somebody knows the ways in which I like to exercise or the times of the day in which I like to exercise, they can make particular recommendations around that. There's also been work in the diabetes space where um, people with a particular genome sequence better off taking a tablet than they are getting regular insulin injections. And so traditionally, medicine has been, and healthcare has been about what works for most people most of the time. And that's great. And it's enabled us to make all these strides. But what if we could tailor that even further? What if we could say what works for this person at this time? Um, and I think that opportunity is worth pursuing whilst at the same time safeguarding against all of these concerns that people have. So um, obviously there's going to be pros and cons in every single aspect of our lives and the use of data and how it's influencing us right now is no exception. So if I quickly sidetrack us from the Australian e-health system in regards to medicine and science and move us over to more of the social and political sphere. What has feedback been like? Um, it's very interesting. So I was talking to colleagues who are part of the rollout of this electronic medical record and they've found the feedback really helpful. So there have been 
changes and tweaks made to the system to address some of the concerns. I think that it's from the conversations I've had with people, it's been more of a, oh, it's great. We've got now got so many eyes on this that people are picking up things that we hadn't thought of and it's enabled us to address it. So the, the feedback has been quite welcome in a sense that it's been an opportunity to refine the product that's being put to market essentially. Um, and people feel that they have a say that there's also a lot of communication about it. I don't feel like it's particularly been trying to be snuck in or anything like that. It's There are adverts about the opt-out process on commercial radio, on television. I, I would say that if it's fairly hard to miss in terms of um, promotion of the program and, and letting people know that they can opt out if they wish to. Fantastic. So let's move on to your paper. So I see your paper's trending on the researcher app and is called Controlling You Watching Me, Measuring Perception Control on Social Media. So for those that may not have read it yet, could you give us a brief overview? So our paper is interested in understanding the assumptions that people make about why others post particular things online um, and understanding people's motivations for posting particular types of images or content on social media. So previous research has shown that um, self-presentation and a desire to manage other people's impressions of yourself is a key motivator for why people engage with social media. Uh, and what we were interested in was unpacking that a little bit further. So if you want to manage other people's impressions of yourself, this requires you to understand that what you do can affect other people's impressions and it requires an intention to manipulate that impression in a way. So not necessarily manipulate in a bad sense, but you're, you're intentionally trying to get people to think about you in a particular way and you are posting things because you know that if you post this image or this sentence or tag yourself in at this restaurant, that it will create a particular impression of you. And so what we found was a lot of the previous research was making this assumption about intention and hadn't had a mechanism to unpack it. So Alison and I were really interested in looking at this perception control factor. So are people consciously making the decision to post a particular in a particular way so that others will view them in a particular light. So we wanted to create this survey tool. So we put together a host of questions that we thought were related to behaviors around perception control, cognitions around perception control, and feelings or affect around perception control. We were also interested in how this might relate to age and people's self-reported gender. So then we ran a principal components analysis to distill our longer survey into a more condensed version of it that actually measures what it claims to measure. And our resulting scale had 12 items. And so we thought, okay, great. So we've got something that now might seem to be able to tap into this sense of perception control. How does this relate to age and how does it relate to gender? So we ran a regression analysis and found that as age increased, the desire for perception control decreased. And we think that 
that might be because as we grow older, our sense of self starts becoming more solidified in a sense. Um, you, you have a better sense of self. You have more established relationships. And so it's less so about trying to control other people's perceptions of you, but people already have a sense of who you are and you have a sense of who you are and you're okay with that. In contrast, adolescents or, or emerging adults are still in this transition phase where they're working out who they are and they're, they're trying on different identities and their peer relationship, relationships are changing. So it's quite important how other people perceive you. If people like you, you might have a partner at the end of it. Um, you, It's when you start building your support networks. And so in a sense, it is quite reasonable to expect that people for whom relationships and building relationships are, are really important. So the younger adults report higher perception control compared to older adults who might have more established relationships and a, a better sense of self. We were then also interested in the differences between men and women. Um, so we had asked a question about gender. So what gender do you identify with, male, female, or transgender? And we only had a small number of participants who identified as transgender. So we excluded that data and compared perception control between men and women and found that there was no difference. And when we reflected on how this fit with previous research, we thought, actually, this kind of makes sense. Both men and women want to manage how other people see them, but the differences is in what exactly they want other people to see. So if you look at research on online dating sites, for instance, uh, men are more likely to lie about their height and women are more likely to lie about their weight. Um, and so we see that in both instances, people want to manage other people's impressions of them, but they do so in slightly different ways. And so our perception control measure might just be looking at whether you want other whether you want to control how other people see you versus looking at the more nuanced how do you want other people to see you so you talk about these tools that are available to help unpack all this information but before your study what kind of tools were available to you so there weren't um many existing tools there were there was research in the area and we kind of used that to build some of the items in our scale. What we'd like to do is our next step um, and we're in the process of doing is seeing how this scale relates to other existing tools such as the impression management subscale of the balanced inventory of desirable responding or the presentation of the online self-scale. And so these tools are more broadly about impression management and don't all drill down to the specific perception control component that we wanted to look at. But we think that if we can find a relationship between the responses on across these different tools and we're starting to build a picture of the ways in which uh, people think about their social media posts and its impact on other people's impressions of them. But obviously you talk about this relationship between self-perception, social media use and age. And that the younger generations obviously have a high level of self-perception on social media. But as this 
younger generation is more tech savvy and use social media more frequently. Do you think that when this younger generation becomes the older generation, that this same level of self-perception will change the results of your experiment? I think that's a great empirical study. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I think it's it's an interesting age to be in right now where social media is such a core part of so many people's lives and and as part of that it's it's the feedback that you get from others online it's the the fact that on something like Instagram where the the friendships on Instagram are asymmetrical so Joe I might decide to follow you on Instagram but you might choose not to follow me and so the affordances of these different social networking sites can lead to highlighting different motivations. So in something like Instagram, because of this asymmetrical friendship structure, I think that it shine more of a light on you as a brand, you as you putting something of yourself out there for others to comment on. And how that affects identity development, I think is more to the heart of what you're asking. Um, I... I don't know. I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to see how this world of constant immediate feedback and feedback that's available on loop. So it's not just within the school playground or when you see your friends face to face or at a social event. It's all the things that happen before and after those face to face encounters. How does this loop of feedback and putting yourself out there and getting more feedback and the types of interactions you can have via emojis and text and short messages, how that affects the way identity develops. And I'm not sure that we're quite at a stage where we can answer that yet. Even now, there's fairly limited research on early adolescents. So you're between, say, 9 and 13-year-olds. So despite the fact that we know anecdotally that young people are on social media around about that age, there's limited research in that. And I think that's a really interesting and exciting space to be in to to try and unpack the role of social media on identity development amongst a group of people who have not known anything else. So in your study, you took 222 participants that were stratified across the Western world with one Indonesian participant. So I'm just curious to know how your results could change if you took this study and flipped it and looked particularly at the Eastern world rather than the Western. I think that that's a great question. Um, so if we think through the variables age and gender, how would Eastern cultures and the way that gender is conceived or age is conceived affect people's desire to control others' perceptions of them. I think that we would see a difference in the desire for perception control between people in individualist cultures and people in collectivist cultures over and above country division. So I, I think if you – so there's a very neat study um, – conducted a little while back looking at cross-cultural differences and they looked at the differences between Anglo-Americans and Southeast Asian American people. 
And instead of looking at sort of racial differences, they asked people the extent to which they subscribed to collectivist ideals. And so it wasn't just about what your heritage was, it was about how much you bought into that culture um, or how much you that you felt that culture was part of who you are. And so I think if we did something like that again in collectivist cultures where the community is so important, having good standing in the community because they are your support. They, they provide emotional support, social support, but they also provide other more practical support. So it might be financial support. It might be driving you down when you need help. So in, in, in that sense, I think that in communities where community and peer relationships are really important, we would see a greater desire for perception control. And it would be interesting, I think, to see how those differences vary in age across Western or individualistic cultures compared to collectivist cultures. So obviously your piece is about social media and self-perception. So I'm just wondering if there is a specific social channel that are more that is more likely for people to have wider issues with self-perception, whether that be Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. Oh, that's something that um, we haven't formally investigated yet. Um, but the the research, so the the limited research that has done comparisons between different social networking sites, so they've. Um, like compared Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and WhatsApp, uh, have found that people do interact differently with the different platforms. In our review of the literature, what we found was that people would use Snapchat. Um, Snapchat is where you post your drunken photos and all the things that you don't want other people to see because it feels like it's a safe space. Um, and you're only communicating with people that you know generally. Instagram is where people post highly curated images. Um, so these are filtered, these are cropped, they are the one photo that you've chosen out of several that you've taken. And we've hypothesized that that's because of the affordances of the, the technical affordances of each of the different platforms. Um, and that's more just from a, a review of the literature rather than um, an empirical investigation. But that's on the cards. So now I'm going to ask you a um, bit of a hypothetical question based off of your recent study. So we can talk about identity development quickly. And I'm just curious to know if there would be differences or could you perceive a self-fulfilling prophecy when you take the same study but you also include ethnicity and class as well as gender and age i think that would be fascinating and um perhaps so i think that early on in cyber psychology research um, we were talking about text-based communication and how online we uh, so john Sula famously wrote uh, um, about factors that affect online disinhibition and one of the things that he mentions is that online there's a minimization of status and authority that if you and I were to meet in person you would see the way I was dressed um, and that will create impressions that might lead to a power imbalance um, just by virtue of all these non-verbal cues but online and particularly in text-based communication we don't have that. I'm not 
convinced now, given the ubiquity of online communication, whether that's still the case. Um, There are nuances in the way we speak and the language that we use that even if you just took text-based communication, I think you would be able to see a difference. I'd be really interested in seeing how people from different classes and ethnicities use tools such as emojis. Um, I know there was a report released a few months ago um, just looking at the the frequency of different emojis used across the world and there were differences across different countries that if you sort of just took it as a glance and, and didn't apply a super scientific lens to it, it would make a lot of sense. Um, so I think there are important and distinct differences in how we interact with each other online and the role of self-perception online. Um, I'd be really curious to see how it plays out in collectivist cultures um, versus individualist cultures where, again, we're looking at that role of other people and how other people see you forming your sense of self but also how you want to control those relationships. And I also think the other thing is there's a a big piece of research to look at whether technology is value neutral or not. We often say that it's it allows us to level the playing field. You know, people who don't have access to healthcare now have access to healthcare because they can video conference in, for instance. But I'm not sure that that's true. If if I'm living in a an English speaking country and English is my second language, if I am from a lower socioeconomic class, I might not have a smartphone, I might not have access to the internet, I might not have the literacy, let alone the health literacy, to access digital technologies to interact with my healthcare professionals. And so I think that there there's a piece of work to be done to look at how value neutral technology actually is. We yeah, so we make these claims about it being a leveler. But is that actually the case and and is it the case for the communities that are already disadvantaged? So obviously this piece is important for the future direction of e-health and for social media consumption, use and perceptions. But what other impacts do you reckon this piece could have on either the academic or the real world? I think that this... um, paper and the work that we've done on it is a really important flag to the academic world about taking a closer look at our assumptions. Um, and for, for Alison and I, it's about taking a step in unpacking the assumptions that we make in our research about people's intentions and people's motivations. And so much of that is at the heart of social media research. We make assumptions about why people post things um, or we ask them but we ask them at a very surface level about why they post things. And so perhaps what we need to do is to unpack some of these assumptions and find ways of measuring them or tapping into them so that it can enable us a more nuanced view of how people interact with each other online and what impact this has on their well-being and their relationships. And so, for instance, we, we know that for every study that shows Facebook use um, increases social support and self-esteem. There's another Facebook. There's another study that shows that Facebook use increases loneliness and depressive symptoms. So what that shows us is that these high-level studies that look at broad outcomes are only just the starting point. And if we really want to understand how it all works, then we've got to take a more nuanced perspective. Um, and 
Our hope is that in time, we would be able to use this understanding to inform conversations that teachers have with their students or parents have with their children or adults have with their friends about the way they interpret other people's posts online and the way they choose to present themselves online so that they can create safe and supportive environments and relationships. Because obviously you've used this for your own academic career and there are multiple ways that people deal with their careers. So what I do is I ask every single one of our guests um, for a quick tip or trick to increase their own productivity. So what would you recommend our own listeners do to increase their own academic output? Um, I I think I'll answer this question in a slightly different way, um, which I'm a little bit afraid I've done with all of your questions. Um, I, I think for me it's not necessarily about increasing productivity. It's about doing work that you really enjoy and ensuring that academia moves in a way that is consistent with its own values. And so once you're in the system, um, try and influence it. So we often talk about publishing or perishing and you have to publish X number of papers a year and you have to do a lot and you have to be competitive and it has to grow at an exponential rate every time you apply for a fellowship or a tenured position or promotion. Um, but I think part of it is also being sensible. Um, publications exist in order to disseminate knowledge um, and they are ways for us to build an academic community to increase our understanding of a particular topic area in the hopes that it will one day change the world or, or at the very least influence the world in the right direction. Um, and so I think for me in terms of productivity, um, part of it is about thinking sensibly about the sorts of papers that I want to publish and influencing the system so that it recognises quality, not just quantity. Um, and then I think on a on a super, super practical level, uh, working in teams is a way of increasing productivity. So working with others, being open with your own work um, and others will, I found that others have done the same, that when you're willing to work as part of the team and you do your part, others will do theirs and you just build this network where you can write together and that, that helps with the numbers. But I think part of it is about arguing with the system to say that it's more than about the numbers. So with this system, and for anybody that might be entering the system, save uh, a young career academic or a PhD, what would be your one piece of advice to them as they're just starting? I would tell them to ask themselves, can you imagine doing anything else with your life? And if the answer is no, you're in the right place. Um, it was something that I heard uh, one of the staff members at our conservatorium ask at their interviews. And they say, if, if somebody can imagine doing something other than music, then this isn't going to be for them because they're always thinking about their backup plan. Um, and I thought, oh my goodness, that's how I feel about academia. And so if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else, not because you're stuck, but because you're really interested, all the hard things become manageable. Um, if you 
if you're in the classroom and your student gets it and that is enough to make your week, if you're sitting there and going through data and cleaning Excel spreadsheets and you enter a state of Zen, if this is what makes you really, really happy and you can't imagine being this happy doing anything else, stay. Um, the hard bits will be worth it. Well, that's just all we've got time for today. You've been listening to the Researcher podcast. And today we've been joined by Dr. Mel Keep from the University of Sydney. Mel, thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Thank you, Joe. And thank you for listening, everyone. Until next time. You've been listening to the Researcher Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can also follow us online at www.researcher-app.com. Or, alternatively, you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcherapp.com. Researcher is free to use on iOS, Android, or on your web browser. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review.